the few things that have changed life expectancy for humans in the past 100 years when WHO published its centenarian analysis was one, the discovery of hygiene and sanitation. We knew about hygiene and sanitation, but it was a recent discovery in the early 18th century, knowing that washing your hands can prevent you from getting diseases, knowing that cholera actually comes as a result of contamination when Jon Snow closed the tap in the center of London, knowing that these things matter. The second thing is the discovery of antibiotics. The third thing, the reduction of smoking and the drinking of alcohol, strong advocacy came coming from two epidemiologists in London. The last thing is every other thing we do in medicine. Every other thing, cardiac catheterizations, chemotherapy, all those things, when you take them as a bulk, they have not increased life expectancy for all humans by up to five years. It's humbling to know that prevention is better than cure at every stage. Anyone who insists, so you guys should not minimize what you're doing, who insists on catching disease early, who insists on preventing disease in the first place, is doing a bigger job than anyone who's curing it. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Anya Fombad, and I spark the heart conversations that challenge questionable cultural and societal norms that threaten the well-being of the African community, and I also share stories about growing up as Africans in Africa and in the diaspora. I strongly believe that normalizing open discussions and sharing experiences, whether good or bad, will not only make you find your voice, but will broaden your sense of purpose and empower others to do the same. So if you have ever tried challenging certain African cultural and societal doctrines, or if you have ever felt like it is about time that we confronted these issues in our African community and do better as a people, or even if you have always been interested in learning about the experiences of other Africans growing up in Africa and the diaspora, then you are in the right place. Welcome to Living African. Now, uh, talking about the treatment and the adverse events or the side effects that are faced with. Akwe, I saw you, you were just shaking your head when it came to the chemotherapy. I would only imagine your own experience, um, what you went through. I know you gave a summary of the number of chemotherapy sessions or radiation sessions that you had. Can you walk us through like when you got that diagnosis? What were the next steps that you followed? Especially a very young girl who is still in the reproductive age group or age range. I'm sure you weren't thinking of only having one child. You know, like what were the things you were told? And you know, how was your experience with the treatment? And when did you start receiving, having side effects and just your entire experience with that? Um, so after I got diagnosed, I had to go back into the hospital like two weeks after that to start testing to see what um, type of cancer I had on the stage and what the treatment process would be like. So like I said, I was diagnosed with stage three, triple negative breast cancer. And um, they said I had to do chemotherapy, then surgery and radiation. And before I started, I was told about the effects of reproduction 
you know, they told me that if I did chemo, I may or may not be able to have kids after that. So I could um, either preserve my eggs, take them out and preserve them or do some shots, some injections. I forgot how to call them, doctor. Yeah, there's some shots that I had to, I, I, I did take that option. So every, I think three months, I would go in and then get the shots and those shots were going to increase my chances of being able to have a baby after treatment if I wanted to. So I did take that option. And then I started treatment in February 2018 with the chemo, chemotherapy. It was a combination of chemotherapy drugs. It wasn't just one. And I did it. I had 16 rounds. And there was this one particular one that they called the Red Devil. That's the street name. I don't want to know what the real names anymore. I used to know. I, I don't want to hear that name. But that was the worst thing that happened to me. And I feel like cancer is not bad. It's the treatment. There were nights that I begged to die. Day three after the, the, the chemotherapy, the, the, the red devil one. And it's actually red in color. You're, you're putting it into your body and it's red in color. They call it red devil. So I will take that every three weeks. And when I take that, the first day I'm fine. Second day I start feeling a little bit sick. And then day three, I'm practically dead. I can't do anything. I can't eat, sleep. My body is hurting all over. I have, I'm dizzy. I'm nauseous. And I was like, God, please, let me just die. There were nights when I had to talk myself into why it was okay for me to die. I would think about my daughter and I would say, well, she has a dad and he's going to take good care of her. I'll be like, my mom, my mom's going to cry, but she'll be fine. My seat, I, had, I had to psych myself into why it was okay for me to die because the, the, the effect, it was just hard. <laughs> but I did that. And then when I was done, I had to do surgery. So when I did the chemo, I actually shrunk the lump. It was just really small after my chemotherapy. And then um, they did a lumpectomy to take it out. And then they took out my lymph nodes to test, some lymph nodes to test and see if, the, if there was still cancer um, in my armpit. Before I did the lumpectomy, I actually had a choice to either just take everything out or do a lumpectomy. My oncologist, Dr. Terry, I really believe in him, and I, I really connected with him, and I kind of just went with his advice, and he told me, he was like, you know, it doesn't really make any difference if you do a mastectomy or lumpectomy, so, but I will tell you to go with a lumpectomy. So I just trusted him, and I went with that option. And um, they took out the lung, and then took out the lymph nodes. When they tested, there was there was still a little bit of cancer in the lymph node, but they said it wasn't that bad that I had to restart my treatment. So I just continued with immunotherapy. I took that option to, to do immunotherapy. I'm sure doctor will have a lot of more information on that. I did two years of immunotherapy. But when I healed from my lumpectomy, I did, um, I did do reconstruction. I had that option, so I did do, um, pers I personally went in for reconstruction after my lumpectomy, and then I did radiation. So six weeks on um, the radiation machine, just having the rays um, on the spot on the breast that was affected. And it was funny because before radiation, the, like, the side effects of radiation, are uh, one of the side effects of doing radiation is cancer. <laughs> I'm like, wait, one of the side effects, I could get cancer yeah. from treating my, like, wow. But I was crazy, but I did do that. That was the easiest. So there's chemo, surgery, and radiation. Radiation was the easiest part. It's like five minutes. You just go, you lie down, and the thing, there's, there's no pain. You don't feel anything. So that was really easy, six weeks of easy treatment. It was. It made my skin dark and dry, but that's all gone now. Everything's back to normal. 
and then immunotherapy i completed that one early this year that one i had no side effects so that part of the treatment was pretty easy so actually sorry can i ask so are you done with treatment yes nothing i have not uh, i I did my mom two weeks ago and the next time that my doctors will hear or see me it's next year i'm done done so you don't take any maintenance medication nothing Amazing, amazing. Wow. So you mentioned reconstruction. Honestly, I was very ignorant about that because I thought reconstruction only happens when you have a mastectomy. But you had a lymphectomy and there was reconstruction. Can you like enlighten us on that? So it's like plastic surgery. When you have breast cancer, I think your insurance will pay for you to do plastic surgery, reconstruction. So I opted for that. I was like, I need to find something positive about this cancer. So that was optional. It wasn't like something. Oh, well, it was very, it was very optional. Okay. When it took all well, my breasts were just kind of a little bit like inside. Oh, okay, okay, know. okay. That makes sense. So we do. We actually do encourage all women to do it. If you're mm-hmm. going in for a lumpectomy, why? Because it's it's for healthcare reasons too. You want to balance the breast. Okay, you yeah. don't want one breast to be. Uh, on the other side, a lot of women will complain of neck pain, especially those who have uh, a, a larger breast, because yeah. the imbalance in the breast is going to cause that. So you really, you either going to reduce this other side. If you have a good breast surgeon in the beginning, it's going to do a good job. You may not even see the scars, mm. like you may not even see it. So most of the time, we just go for reduction on the other side, depending on the woman, or you go for refilling on the side. So right. it's more of yeah, balancing the two, depending on what you want. If you want the other side to be reduced to resemble this side that was done, or you want this side to be enlarged to resemble this side. So it's cosmetic and it also has some health benefits for the woman who opt for a lumpectomy. And truly, all the medical research we have so far, lumpectomy and radiation is equivalent to mastectomy, except in few cases. Meaning a case like Gwen's case here is a case you don't want to do radiation. So the options we're going to tell you is to do a mastectomy. The oncology is not even going to give you those other options. It's going to tell you this is what is good for you. You could opt out, but that's what is really good because no radiation oncologist is going to radiate someone with with uh, leave family syndrome. Mm. The next thing is we try as much as possible to make sure that people do understand what their treatment is really going to be. In the beginning, we talked to women about all the side effects. Yeah. As Akwi said, some of these drugs are worse than others. People react differently to different drugs. What she's talking about is doxorubicin. It's also called adriamycin. I know she doesn't want to hear that word. <laughs> so it's doxorubicin, and it's also called adriamycin. And not everyone has the same problem with that drug with the heart. We're actually worried about the heart. So she got to do echo, what we call an, um, an ultrasound of the heart. I think several times she may have done that because it's very cardiotoxic, that drug. Yeah. So there are times we omit it. In people who are not triple negative, we actually do omit it. We could give you other combinations that are out there, cyclophosphamide with paclitaxel, which most people don't really get any reaction to that. We do omit it at times. And uh, for triple negative breast cancer, immunotherapy has a big place, especially those who have a marker we call the pdl one marker, even when it's greater than 1%. 
that's when we offer it to these patients. And uh, in breast cancer, we use pambrolizumab, that's the name of the drug. We use atezolizumab. I'm sure she was taking atezo. Yeah, so I'm sure she was taking atezo from her COVID. I know she was on atezo. And immunotherapy is a wonder, okay? In all cancers, a wonder. I'll tell you certain things. There are cancers where we can give you drugs which are gonna shrink your cancer. If you have a lung cancer and you have a EGFR positive lung cancer, mm-hmm. it could give you a drug called osimatinib. The side effects of your diabetic medications are worse than it, okay? And all your cancers are gonna shrink. We know that. And that's why I say oncology is going to a certain level where we are able to do a lot of miraculous things on patients. And uh, on these drugs, there are so many drugs we have at our disposal. But there are still some cancers that we are unable to really help people. But what I want to say is that she really gave a real detailed description. We also do tell these women, a lot of women, more women complain about losing their hair than anything else I know. So if you're starting with a woman, you need to tell her about her hair. They're going to lose their hair, you want to tell them how to prevent it. There is something called cold caps. I don't know if your oncologist told you about where you could actually put ice and put cold caps. They do help. One thing I joke with my patients, they love it. When I tell them when it's going to fall, it's going to come back, it's going to be curly. They love to hear that. And it does. <laughs> For some reason that we don't know, once post chemotherapy, especially in Caucasians, the hair gets curly. If you have never had a curly hair, it looks like this big foot. What you guys call it, jelly cause it looks yeah. by itself post chemotherapy. The hairs, so a lot of people love to hear that, and we joke about it, we crack some jokes. But most of the side effects are more in uh, your blood counts in the hematopoietic system, it's going to knock your bone marrow. Chemotherapy is really destroying, trying to destroy cancer cells and non cancer cells, everything in the body that has a turnover that is high. Every cell in the body that divides fast is going to have a problem. Your mouth divides fast. Your your tongue divides fast. Your GI tract divides fast. So you're going to have diarrhea. You're going to have pain. You're going to have sores in the mouth. You're going to have anemia. You're going to have thrombocytopenia. You may bleed. Some of them may cause neuropathies. But, 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 we have advanced in such a way that we can take care of these things. It's going to be nightmares. Some people may not have. People cruise through this chemotherapy without anything happening to them. Others really feel bad. While for radiation, on the other hand, during radiation, you don't feel anything. 80% of the time, nothing. Towards the end of radiation, especially in breast cancer, you could feel the area being sore, area being red, or area being dark in dark-skinned people. You could just feel, if you use kind of what we call like Vaseline, any gel kind of thing, you apply on the area, you have less side effects. But they, are, they have long-term side effects, rather. But they are totally reduced now because the way we did radiation 50 years ago is different from the way it's done now. There's something called IMRT, which is dose-intensified radiation, which is given just to that specific area. There are computers that design it. They are able to provide you radiation just to that cancer that you have there without touching any other place in the body. It's so super, super dope. Trust me, it's like a technology like your son who loves who daughter, who loves computer engineering to go look at it, how what they do, because it's super, super nice just being there. They get to actually target the tumor itself without targeting other areas. Radiation used to cause a lot of cancers, lymphomas. 
majority of women who had breast radiation later on developed lymphomas in the future. Those who had lymphomas, on the other hand, later on developed other cancers. A lot of them got cardiac problems. So all these problems with radiation have been reduced drastically, and they are being reduced every single day as the technology gets better. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much. Are you... <laughs> well, you're, you're very resourceful, I must say. I mean, and you've answered a lot of questions that I had. I had a lot, lot of follow-up questions, you know, uh, concerning, you know, the timing or when to when it's best to do a mastectomy versus a lumpectomy and things like that. And you did a great job at um, explaining that because, as you can see, and I'm really glad that Gwen and Akwe are here because they had entirely two different diagnoses and two different experiences. You know, Akwe had a lumpectomy, Gwen had a mastectomy, you know, so it just goes to show that there are different things. And I think Gwen, actually, I believe you had just six chemotherapy sessions, right? Yes, I did have six chemotherapy sessions, but I had Herceptin, Herceptin, which doctor talked about, which is um, hormonal treatment. Yes. Still every three weeks. I had that for a year before. Now I'm on tamoxifen or something. So many yeah. other stuff. So, I change them all the time. <laughs> yeah. So you are actually, I mean, you are also in remission. Both of you are in remission, but the only difference is Acqui is like drug free. Like she does not take any drugs for cancer, like no medications. But you, Gwen, you still have to be on like the tamoxifen, you know, for, I mean, I don't know how long, for as long as, I don't know, maybe Dr. Foma can explain. So, yeah. So <laughs> if she's on tamoxifen, then it means that actually Gwen had triple positive um let me say that yeah. i just started tamoxifen because i was on anastrozole before yeah and so, then i stopped for a while so yeah. my okay yeah so yeah, so because okay so this is very important because now that i get what she's taking i can tell her 100 percent. i know what she had she her her septin is what we call transtuzumab it's the name, that's the generic name. Herceptin is actually the name of the, right drug, the drug that produces it. So you hear a lot of people call it Herceptin. And she described her, her, her journey very, very well. You do get six cycles of chemotherapy and targeted therapy, which is a combination of all these drugs I've just said. It's going to be usually doxorubicin. If they're not giving doxorubicin, they can omit it and just give you um, uh, cyclophosphamide with paclitaxel or carboplatin with paclitaxel and they add transtuzumab and pertuzumab to it which we call that the Clopatra regimen because the clinical trial that did that was Clopatra then after that we're going to put you on maintenance treatment on Herceptin which is transtuzumab if you are oestrogen positive and you are premenopausal then Actually, what they were supposed to give you, which makes more sense, is giving you more of uh, amoxifene. It comes with its own side effects. How long do you take it? That's a big question. Five, I was years, talking about last time. five years must take it. We encourage everyone to be on it for five years. Then there is advantage that shows that going up to 10 years is now advantageous. What, why do we say that? We realize that once we stop it, women usually have a tendency to have reoccurrence. The reoccurrence rate is very low, but that little benefit, so we are giving it now to women up to the 10 years. Once you reach five years, your oncologist is going to explain to you the risk and benefits of going up to eight to 10 years 
on tamoxifen or on anastrozole is an AI, an androgen receptor inhibitor. You can do anastrozole, lastrozole, and stemestine. There are so many others that they are the same kind of drugs with different side effects. Most of the time, if you are taking anastrozole, the side effects would be like osteoporosis, pain. You would feel joint pains. A lot of women will come tell you they have nightmares. They feel like they are getting menopausal. They feel like they're dying. They feel like it. So some women have nothing. Now, if you're on tamoxifen, on the other hand, your chances of developing ovarian cancer, of developing uterine cancer increases slightly, but your bones are protected on the other hand your chances of developing osteoporosis is low. And we need to tell these women this same thing so that they know about it and uh, they know exactly what these chances are. But if you read any book, you're going to hear, oh, chances of developing over, um, uh, uterine cancer is very high. It's not very high, but there is a higher chance in women who are on tamoxifen. And that's why if you're on tamoxifen and you complain of any vagina bleeding, abnormal bleeding, metromenorrhagia, meaning bleeding out of your menses, periods, and all of that, you take it very seriously. But these drugs have different side effects. Maintenance therapy, the reason we give it for a long period of time is that the side effects are not as bad as chemotherapy. Most women don't even know they're taking anything. They are the best to tell us. Some of my patients are so bad about it, they hate it. <laughs> Some of them are like, no, I can cruise. They finished 10 years. I'm like, you have to go, you want to go again for 15 years? There's a clinical trial we're doing. They're like, okay, let's do it. But others are like, when three years or one year, when are we stopping? Yeah. So they come for one year, they ask me, when are we stopping? I said, we're going to switch. They're like, okay, I'll try the Lestrozole. Then they come the next day, it's still causing the same problem. I said, we're going to switch. They're like, okay, so why do you keep switching? And I have to explain to them the relative risk and benefits of not being on it. Even if you're not on it, actually, your chances of developing breast cancer is still pretty low after this treatment. But what is important is that if you're estrogen positive and progesterone positive, hormonal therapy is more important than chemotherapy. That's why women need to know this. Hormonal therapy is more important than chemotherapy. Now, if you're hard to positive, I always insist you have actually, before the era of modern medicine, you had the most dangerous breast cancer. So I do treat my hard to patients differently. I try to encourage them, if they're estrogen and progesterone positive, to try to go for five years. If they can do 10 years, that's good. Each time we celebrate in the cancer center, when they come in to make them feel happy that we are actually with them in this, they get it, it becomes... We actually clap for our patients when they are done with chemotherapy, like the whole ceremony that we do. And <laughs> you ring the bell. Dr. Farmer, I think it's more um, harder for um, women who are not of the menopausal age because we have to go take um, gosolarin or yes. some kind of injection every month, and that hurts so bad. So we always opt out. Way yeah, you have to do that if you're going to take um, uh, anastrozole and if you're going to take lestrozole so that's why a lot of women and I usually a lot of doctors hesitate to give tamoxifen in the beginning just because of that aspect that they say it increases chances of uterine cancer but it's very low so I opt for premenopausal women that's the best data we have is with tamoxifen I do give them tamoxifen mm-hmm. I offer tamoxifen to them I offer everything to them they have to make a choice but I encourage them to go for tamoxifen if they're premenopausal. But the sad part about it is that that's not the majority of our patients. 
So when you have this premenopausal women who come in, young girls with cancers, they are really, it's always very disheartening talking to them about fertility preservation, talking to them about the side effects, these drugs that were not tested in their cohort in specific situations, trying to give them options is really one of those challenging things that we have because majority of my patients truly are those who are above 60 years who have breast cancer. Right. So, I forget something. Really sorry. After my uh, immunotherapy, I actually had to take some tablets, which is what I stopped um, early this year. I forgot that. See, my cancer treatment gives me serious um, PTSD, so I try not to think about the medications and everything. But I took tablets, which um, made my hands really black, my feet were really black. I don't know, Zeloda? Zeloda, Capsidabin. Yeah, so it's called Capsidabin Zeloda. I did take that. Yeah, you see, I hate those names, but yeah. I did take that uh, after my treatment just immediately. And I, I stopped at one point because I was like, I don't like what it's doing to my body. And then I got back on it, and then I stopped, and then I got back. And that's what I completed um, early this year. So that was the last thing that I had to take. Right. So thank you very much. Thank you all so much for sharing that. And Akwe, I'm going to eventually touch on, you know, like how that really affected you. I mean, that's based on your level of wanting, willingness to share, because I'm not about to trigger certain past events, you know, with the PTSD and everything. But um, just still staying on the track of the treatment, right? And this question goes to you, Dr. Foma. You know, Considering the complexity of breast cancer, right, even though there are treatment advancements, it's still very complex, especially for some of our people, our family members and our peers back in Africa. And, you know, with social media and with conspiracy theories and everything, that only makes the treatment dynamics very, or the outlook towards the treatment or the perspective very complex because a lot of people are not sure there's this notion out there that chemotherapy will, yeah, it kills the good and the bad cells, right? Some of it. But a lot of people focus on the good cells that are being killed and they're like, oh yeah, me taking chemotherapy is going to make kill me. I mean, chemotherapy will literally kill me faster than not taking it. Or some people will be like, oh yeah, there are a couple of diets out there, the alkaline diet, which was very promoted by Dr. Sebi, which, you know, I actually looked into that and it sounded legit as well. But I feel like personally, I will use that as complimentary, <laughs> right? Not necessarily the only thing, considering my scientific background, but that's just me. But what will you really say regarding these treatment options and just like clear that confusion that's out there that makes a lot of people shy away from even starting treatment? I mean, we're lucky here in America because we have the opportunity or the ability to be advised by trained professionals and make that informed decision, right? We don't just wake up out of the blue and say, oh, I don't want it or I want it. Or some people can do that too, but at least we have that information from the practitioners like you, oncologists and all of that. But a lot of people don't really have that information back home, you know. So what will you really say to these people or to our community to be more aware about the truths behind chemotherapy and why or why or, or not is it necessary? So I, uh, <laughs> among all cancer doctors, we're always the ones on the hot seat. So there are several cancer doctors. There's the cancer surgeon, there's the radiation oncologist, and there's the 
medical oncologists, which people think we give just chemotherapy. I'll start by debunking the myth about chemotherapy. Chemotherapy all started, I think, uh, back in the early 1920s with doctors. There is uh, Dana Faber. If you hear the name Faber, Faber was the first doctor, really. The Harvard Chemotherapy Center is named after him, who started experimenting drugs on uh, little children to treat leukemia. He was a pathologist. He was not even a cancer doctor because there were no cancer doctors, really. Cancer was treated by surgeons. So chemotherapy over years, we have gotten better. We have actually gotten better in reducing the toxicity from one generation of chemotherapy to the other. We have gotten better in targeting only cancer cells and allowing non-cancer cells to survive. We have actually gotten better in treating the side effects that we induce during chemotherapy by boosting the cells up. We do give medications to help the bone marrow heal better. We have gotten better in taking care of nausea and vomiting. Those are things we induce by giving chemotherapy drugs. We have gotten better in preserving fertility in both men and women during the time they are getting chemotherapy. We have gotten better in treating infections that people get during the time we're giving chemotherapy in such a way that people rarely die from the chemotherapy we gave them rather than from the cancer. Because back in the 60s, like the cancer is either going to kill you or the chemotherapy is going to kill you. But you need a specialized team. That's why it's a field where there is constant research going on day to day. Chemotherapy is just one tool we have in our toolbox as medical oncologists, one out of many. And among those chemotherapy drugs, there are some things we don't use anymore. There are other things that we use now which are less toxic, more efficacious, and uh, we are driving towards that. We are trying now to even combine immunoglobulins with chemotherapy and able to target specific cells, drive the chemotherapy to those cells. And uh, we are able to combine radiation treatment even with chemotherapy. We're able to do a lot of things in medicine. So I would always say talk, if you're in the, if you're in, in the U.S., in Europe, any of the countries in Europe, they're also very good in Germany, in the in U.K., you can have the same standard of care, times even better than here, where you have all this technology which is available, where we are combining chemotherapy with a lot of things, targeting cells, specific cells, and making targeted treatment. The more targeted your treatment is, the more you're not going to target off-targets. All the side effects are usually off-target. So if you're targeting chemotherapy, is targeting drugs that are dividing, cells that are dividing fast. So any cell in the body that divides fast, your hair produces hair quickly because it divides fast. Yeah. So the hairs are yeah. going to fall off. Your mouth divides fast because it sloughs out all the time. So you're going to get sores. Your GI tract is constantly renewing itself every day. So you're going to get problems with the GI tract. Your sperms, your ovaries multiply. So that's why we have, but we are getting better. So chemotherapy people should not be afraid. If they are in a specialized center, they are able, they should get informed about what they are going to go through and how to prevent complications. The second thing in Cameroon in, and in Africa is a bit difficult. As I said from the beginning, we need to train people. Once we get to the point where we can holistically train everyone who is involved in this process, we'll make life better for them. 
they will be able to make informed consent. Now we have other tools we have in our toolbox, which this is what people don't know. Each time you come to me, I'm not going to give you, if you have prostate cancer and you come to me, I may never give you chemotherapy, never. You may never ever know that you even have prostate cancer. You may never feel any side effects of anything. I may never give you chemotherapy for 20 years, for 30 years. I may not give you chemotherapy. I start by giving hormonal therapy, a shot you get every three months, which uh, Gwen and uh, Appy may have gotten. I give you that every three months, I go home and you're fine. The cancer goes away. Even with metastatic disease, when you're progressing, I give you androgen inhibitor therapy. The cancer stays away for another time. You come in, I may just send you to go, do, um, to go see a radiation oncologist. He's just going to burn out the prostate. Or you may get a prostatectomy. There are so many other targeted drugs I can give you where you will never touch chemotherapy. You may touch chemotherapy in the 20th year of you having prostate cancer. Wow. Then there, that's hormonal therapy, which we do give to, to women who have ovarian cancer, breast cancer, some other cancers that produce estrogen, androgens, testosterone, progesterone, we can give them hormonal therapy. That's what we call hormonal therapy. There is another kind of therapy called immunotherapy, where we use your immune system in order to kill cancer cells. In this box or toolbox, there are so many things we use. There is a drug which Acri took, which is a PDL1 inhibitor. We are able to actually teach your cells, which are your soldier cells in the body, your T cells. Cancers are so intelligent that they are able to disguise themselves and prevent the soldiers in the body from killing them. You are going to be able to unmask them, and the immune cell goes and kills them. That's all we do. We unmask it, and the immune cell goes and picks it out. Every treatment that does that is called immunotherapy. We can do that by using certain uh, certain targets that we know about, we're going to unmask those targets, or we're going to actually give a, a marker to that cell and be able to kill it with our immune system. There are so many drugs that are available that we use that. There are other targets that we do, we call targeted therapy. So we are able to identify certain cells in the body. They have markers. Each of us sitting here, if they say, okay, this is, uh, let's say, Acri. We know how to describe her. Joyce, we know how to describe someone. We may know how to describe my friend out there who's maybe called uh, James or anything. We know each and every one. So we're able to actually target them specifically. So we're creating drugs that can go in and look for certain targets that are found only in cancer cells and kill them. That's what we call targeted therapy. At times, we're able to make monoclonal antibodies that are also able to go in and catch up these target cells. There are some amazing things going on in cancer where we're able to produce a car that drives in the body. It's called CAR T cells. We're able yeah. to get your blood out of your body. And we're going to teach your cells how to kill the cancer cells and inject them back into you, okay? We take your cells out. We teach them how to kill cancer cells. We inject them back into you and we let you go. You come back after a month, everything has gone away, okay? We're doing that now. There's something called bi-specifics. We do the same thing. So there's so many things I use, which other doctors don't talk about. I, the medical oncology, I don't only give toxic drugs, okay? We do give a lot of amazing things in different cancers, and we're studying them. We're able to use some of this technology in some cancers more than other cancers. Some cancers are really difficult, 
and uh, we are trying our best, but things are not moving the right way for us. A lot of cancers in the brain, the brain, blood-brain barrier is actually blocking us from progressing, but we are getting there. So that's just what I wanted to say. Now, concerning alkaline diet, I, those who know me well, I am a big fan of good nutrition, healthy nutrition. To my patient, maybe not to me, but big fan of healthy nutrition. The alkaline diet itself, if you look at the chart, if you Google alkaline diet, you're going to see everything good that everyone nutritionist has talked about. It's eating vegetables, eating uh, more of avoiding, um, avoiding proteins, lean meat, and all of those things, and more of food that is alkaline. But saying that alkaline diet cures cancer is not true. I want to be very frank about this. It's not true, but it makes you live a healthy life. Let's say what are the risk factors of getting breast cancer? Breast cancer, the biggest risk factor is age. Yeah. The reason we're having more breast cancer is that women are living longer. That's the main first thing to note. There is no other risk factor like age. The second risk factor is genetics. But the third risk factor start coming in is weight. Women, when they start putting on weight, men too would develop breast cancer, have a higher frequency of developing breast cancer. Next thing is women who have children in their later ages. But just taking weight and exercise, smoking and alcohol, smoking alcohol or acidic, alkaline in itself may help, may be, may be nice. But one thing I want to demystify is that once you take an alkaline food and you're trying to eat it, it's not going to change the pH of your body, no. Once it gets to your stomach, your stomach is going to produce acid to neutralize it. The body actually works at a specific pH. No yeah. matter how much pH you put in, the body is going to regulate its pH to be at a specific 7.4. That's where the body wants to function. Yeah. So the body is a regulatory machine. But I'm an advocate for alkaline diet, not because it's going to treat cancer, just because it's going to make you live well. It's going to prevent a lot of disease. It's going to make you lose weight. It's going to make you actually get more vitamins and it's going to make you get more nutrition. So I advocate for it in the sense that it's good nutrition. It makes sense. But I don't advocate and tell my patients that take this alkaline diet is going to treat your cancer. No. Okay. If you want to go alkaline, good. It's going to be good for you, good for your family, good for everyone. Right. Well, thank you so much for that um, information. Now, going to uh, you, Aqui, you know, we, you, you, you briefly spoke about, you know, how the, the Red Devil, you know, how it affected you. And one thing, again, as Dr. Froma said, was that a lot of women are so concerned about the side effects, which obviously is a hair loss and everything. So what were your own side effects and what message can you pass on to women who are uh, actually going through that? Because it's very easy for women to, you know, even the women experience different adverse events relating to these medications, but it's very different. It's very easy for a woman to think that she's, she's alone in this. You know what I mean? But I feel like through, through sharing our stories, regardless of what medication we took or what experience we had, it really is going to empower other women out there to feel like they're not alone. And also, if you could also tell us how you manage the emotional, the mental, and even the physical aspects of, you know, the impact that this medication or the chemotherapy or the treatment experience had on you. Um, if you could just let us know that and inspire some women out there, that would be great. So the first 
side effect that I had when I started treatment was hair loss. That I think that's the most common side effect, and that's the one side effect that I always knew all my life that cancer patients they lose their hair. I didn't know why, but I thought maybe cancer makes you lose your hair. I didn't even know it was a treatment that makes you lose the hair. So that was the first thing that I noticed when I woke up one day and it was like a lot of hair on my pillow, but I was expecting it. I knew it was going to come. My doctors had already told me. So of course I cleaned my pillow up. It didn't really affect me that much when I, when I started losing my hair because I anticipated it. So by the time more hair started falling off, I decided to just get everything to shave my hair before I even a lot of it fell off. So that Losing my hair did not affect me emotionally or make me feel bad, but I come to realize that a lot of women really get emotionally broken and, you know, they feel really down when they start losing their hair. And I feel really bad. I try to encourage them that, you know, hair doesn't really, it's, it's not who you are. It's, it's, just, it's just hair, and it's going to grow back after your treatment. You are beautiful the way you are. Your beauty comes from inside, not even yeah. outside. Really try to encourage women. My whole treatment, I would take pictures and post with, you know, bald head, corobo, and you know, smiling like. And Gwen did the same thing. A lot of people used to say, me, <laughs> "Look at her," you know. Gwen really inspired me a lot. She didn't really know that. Looking at her pictures, how she would put her red lipstick with her corobo, smiling. And I can do that too, you know. Like I can, I can be like her, and that's kind of what I did. And I know a lot of women wear wigs and, you know, cover their hair. And I get it, especially back in Cameroon. You know, if you're a woman and you went out with your hair like that, something's wrong, you're sick. She has yeah. HIV, like, they just start labeling you. So I get why a lot of women want to, like, you know, cover up their hair. But for me, it's it didn't change who I was, you know. And beauty, like I said, is from inside. So losing my hair didn't really affect me. The nausea, looking back, I mean, God forbid I had to go through chemo again, especially the Red Devil. But if I had to do it, um, I'll do it differently because it's only towards the end that I realized how I could have tackled it. And it was a fellow survival who kind of made me, you know, gave me some tips. So when I, when I do the chemo, it just really makes me so tired, so nauseous, so weak, so dizzy. And she would tell me, you know, your energy is very low. You need to eat, but don't eat a lot of carbs. Because carbs, you need energy to burn your carbs. So she would tell me, do the green juice, um, do ginger for nausea, you know, try to rest, listen to music if you like, just calm down, do the things that just make you happy, try to figure out those things that make you happy, avoid anything that will stress you, or anyone that will stress you. You know, and it really helped me because you, you get some calls from people they, they call you out of concern, but after those calls, you just feel really sick. Or I go like, oh my goodness, I feel so sorry. It's just, it's, 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 it's like, it's just too much. And it kind of really stresses me out. So I will talk more to people that will call me and talk anything but cancer. I will talk more to people who are just really positive. And the others, I know that they didn't mean any harm. They were just really concerned, but I kind of just avoided, you know, talking with them. I would rather text than pick up their calls. So I tried to really do only those things that, you know, make me feel good inside, make me just feel calm and listen to music a lot. And I would try to really eat healthy and less carbs, more protein, more veggies to get a lot of energy. During chemo, I had to go to the emergency twice 
And that's when I, I realized that I had anxiety. I probably had it all my life without knowing what it was, you know, but going to the ER because I couldn't breathe. I thought I was dying. I realized that I really do suffer from anxiety. So I tried to um, figure out what was causing my anxiety and avoid those things. And that really helped me a lot also. And then, yeah, so I just had the usual side effects, the hair loss, the anxiety, nausea, which looking back now, ginger really helps with my nausea. It really helped with my nausea. Then the weakness, the green juice, I would just blend celery, um, apples, grapes, beetroot, and I would drink that. And it would just really make me, you know, feel, you know, have a lot of energy and strength. And then just resting and um, trying to avoid any triggers. Right. Thank you so much for sharing that. So talking about anxiety, actually, those are one of the questions I was going to ask because it's very easy, you know, to literally have that kind of serious experience, literally facing death. I would imagine that, you know, your anxiety could potentially be out of this world, you know, just that fear of, you know, like what's going to happen or the fear of the unknown, what's going to happen to my loved ones back, you know. did Since you were in remission, did you ever have any anxiety of it coming back, especially when you're not taking any medications, any maintenance medications or anything of that sort? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. There's, there's days when I, you know, I just have a lot of anxiety. And every now and then I'll think about the possibility of my cancer coming back. And, it, it yeah, it affects me. It makes me, like, just feel low, feel down. And then sometimes I just, like, um take a step back from everything and everyone, just get in my shell and try to deal with it. I did actually go to therapy after my treatment. I had to, I was dealing with a whole lot. I got divorced. Um, I had to, you know, COVID and everything. It kind of really affected me emotionally. So I had to do therapy. And my therapist really confirmed, you know, after like the first three sessions, so like, yeah, you have acute anxiety. And we try to piece out those things that cause my anxiety. And the main thing which people don't even understand when I try to explain is speaking up calls. With my, with my phone rings, it gives me bad anxiety being invited to places. I will go if I want to, but just getting, I don't, it's, it sounds very hard to explain to people, but little things like that just give me anxiety. I don't know why. So I've learned to, you know, do things at my pace, no pressure. If I have to go somewhere, I'm going to go. If I cannot go, I'm going to say sorry. I cannot make it. If I could not do this Zoom call because I felt it, I would tell you, like, hey, sorry, yeah. I can't make it. Yeah. So I've learned to say no respectfully. And I've learned to not put myself under any pressure. There are times when people will say, hey, I haven't seen you post in a while. And I'm like, yeah, it's okay. I'll post when I, yeah, I do not put myself any under, um, under any sort of pressure. So I think that that has helped a lot with my anxiety. My therapist wanted to put me on medication because she felt like maybe that would help more. She even spoke about medical marijuana. I'm like, no, I don't think it's that bad. But she said, let's try to figure out why you're always anxious, you know, put those things together. And, you know, I, I realized that I really lived my life for people. I tried to please everyone. I didn't know that. Like, if you know me, you're not even you're like, nah, that's not you. I'm like, I didn't know that too. Like I did things to, I tried to make sure everybody was okay, try to be there for everybody, try to, you know, make everybody understand why I was doing certain things, explain my side of the story. Just, 
but you know now I've learned a lot about myself, about people, and I just you know go at a steady, calm pace, and I learn to breathe. The second time that I went to the emergency, when I got back, that's when I met the survivor who really helped me. And she was like, you have to take a deep breath, you know, take deep breath in, out. And I could not do it. And she was like, do it. And I could not. I did not know that I don't know how to do that. Because the only time that I have to do the breathing thing is when you go to the hospital and the doctor says, breathing, and you just do it, you go down. But that day, she was like, take a deep breath. I'm like... And then I'm just, I'm, yes, I didn't know that. Um, I didn't know how to, you know, take that deep breath in and out. And it's so important. And I have an Apple Watch, and every now and then it will say breathe. And I will click on it, and it will, you know, do the whole breathing thing with it. When I cannot do it, I know something is wrong. Because there are days when I'm like, you yeah. know, so breathing in and out is so important. I try to tell people, yeah. do it. I think it's easy on do it. And you have to do it, and you're like, you, you can't even take the deep breath in and out. It's it helps yeah. me. I do, and it really helps me a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can attest to that because I am so into meditation as well. I do meditation. It really helps me calm down my stress and everything. So I I can definitely attest to the controlled breathing and learning how to breathe in and out, especially when you're stressed. Now, yeah. um, you both had. Obviously, we know by now that you had like intense experiences with breast cancer, but that did not mean that life did not continue, right? Like, I just want to use this opportunity to let the audience know how strong both of you are, because I feel like your story would definitely inspire women out there who are going through the same thing. So, Akui, despite everything you were going through, uh, stage three, triple in, uh, triple negative, and you actually went through a divorce, and you had a twenty-two month old baby to still take care of, and then Gwen, you had stage two her two cancer, and a couple of months later, your only son was diagnosed with brain cancer, and a couple of months later, you lost your child, your son, to brain cancer, and then you went through a divorce. I cannot imagine, like, <laughs> I, I can't imagine what both of you went through, but you are still here to tell your story. You were still strong enough to, you know, face life. You know, I, I, I just can't imagine what it feels like, but I just want to thank you guys for showing this level of strength and tenacity because not everyone can do it. And I hope that other women who are going through just cancer and nothing else can look at your story and see that, you know, I mean, I can make it too. I can really make this too, you know. So I just want to thank you both for um, talking about your story. Now, in terms of uh, quality of life and things like that after, Dr. Foma, can you just tell us, like, what is typically recommended for women after chemotherapy, you know, just to maintain some kind of lifestyle changes and maintain some level of quality of life that could help them or at least could boost their immune system and keep them healthy? So what we do in uh, our cancer center usually is when and Akri have told you, already they have made a lot of notice to a lot of things that are very important. Once you're going through this process, you're diagnosed with breast cancer, 
for any form of cancer, it's good to get a support group. Yes. Yeah. It's good to talk with survivors, those who have gone through this experience before. The doctors have not, most of them. So there are people who have gone through this experience that will tell you how they coped with their side effects. Even doctors feel that when you have a diagnosis of cancer, you're dying. So you're going to be treated differently. Either with a lot of empathy that you may not like, <laughs> or because people are different, or you're going to be treated with a lot of skepticism about you dying soon at people then you and you're gonna feel it they may feel you're not feeling it but you feel it most patients do feel it and they don't want you to be empathetic into the point where they feel like they're desperate they want you just to treat them like fellow other humans yeah but you need to get a support group we do have support groups that we offer to our patients based on race based on religion based on other things, a lot of support groups are in New York. We can link you to those support groups. We think that's the most important. Where you talk to others who have had the same thing you've had, they'll tell you what you're going to go through, how to do it, what works for them, how to prevent you from having neuropathies, tingling on your legs. They do say things that we discover only after 20 years that they do work. How to prevent your hairs from falling off love your hair. There are other who just love the hair, which is, they look at, they have a new look, which they never go away from it. Trust me. One of my <laughs> cancer patients, I would just call her Mary. She always comes to me and says, Dr. Penny, I never, because most of the people come to me, I never knew I actually love to be bold. Since I became bold, everybody wants me, but I don't want them. So, she tells me that, like, every time you come to the office, you're like, oh, you know, three guys try so, so there are people who find new pleasures and they find things which they did not know that they are good at doing that. So getting a support group is very important. Talking to people like yourself who have gone through the same experience like you is important. Knowing about the cancer is important. Educating yourself about the cancer is important. There are several resources out there. I usually tell people jokingly that YouTube has YouTube is a good resource that you can never believe it. But getting good information from the cancer guidelines, from the NCCN guidelines for patients, from several other up-to-date, there are so many guidelines out there for patients, it's important. Getting your doctor tell you about each and every form of treatment that you're going to go through, printing up materials for you is very important. Getting to talk with your nurse navigators who are going to navigate you through stress. Talking to the system. If you're financially constrained, you don't have any any form of insurance, it doesn't mean you're going to die. There's so many people out there to help. Right. If your drugs are too expensive, don't just swallow it and be dying when you're paying a copay of $10,000. Talk to it to the case management and social workers. Gates Foundation, all these rich guys are providing money that some people are getting, and those you're not the one to fight that fight. Those case managers and social workers have to fight that fight for you. You should be able also to tell your loved ones, the people you really love. Mm -hmm. So the people you really love, my phone is ringing, let me tell you. But the people you really love, you should be able to tell them about it and tell them how you want them to treat you. Right. Sometimes we feel like communication is really telling people how you want them to treat you. Don't feel they are going to just know because yeah. none of them have gone through it. They have not gone through it and they are... 
each person is going to try to treat you the best way they feel is good, but it may not be the best way for you. And you end up having some conflicts in your family, mm -hmm. with your friends, which are not necessary conflicts. Learn to prioritize yourself. Now, nutrition is very important. And I'm going to tell, I always tell people, eat well. Eating well is a global thing. Drink water more than when you drink juice. Fruits and vegetables are good for your health. Always have yourself. Carbohydrates should not be above this. No, I don't do those things. I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> 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 With African so foods, it's so hard. <laughs> and, um, so I tell them, eat well during this period. Eat what you love also. Mm -hmm. And uh, try to do the fun things that you like with your kids, with your friends, with your brothers, with your siblings, with people that care about you during this period. If you do those things, you're going to go through. I personally go through a lot of things with music. If I go to the gym and I'm able to, I'm able to exercise, if I'm driving, so I hit the highway, a friend tells me, oh, I'm having a wedding. And I say, let me just go. I prefer to take a plane because if I'm driving, I realize after an hour that why is this journey so <laughs> I realized I was not listening to African music. I'm like, damn, this is why. So right. once I switch it, I can go for three hours, four. So people need to know what makes them happy and go through this process. Talk to your doctors about side effects. Ask them, prompt them. Don't hide side effects. Latinos and African women are notorious for not complaining. Meaning notorious for not complaining. While there are other groups of women who are notorious for complaining, like uh, African-Americans and themselves are notorious for complaining, but African <laughs> women from Africa, they feel that talking about their side effects, talking about problems to doctor is nagging the doctor. Mm -hmm. so they tend to keep it to themselves. You're having dysphagia. You're having difficulty swallowing. You're having nausea and vomiting. We have drugs and medications that can help you. We have techniques that can help you. We can send you to other people who help you and not necessarily us. Yeah, all these services are covered by your insurance. Use them. Talk to your physicians about them. Don't hide issues. So these are really a group of things I talk to my patients about. I, when I, during my training, I had a very good radiation oncologist. Each time I did a rotation with him, the way he explained what he was going to do, I was like, damn, Dr. Lee, how did you say all these things? He's like, Kenny, I'm just teaching you. <laughs> so right. It's right. important, yeah. Very important. Wow. Um, During my conversation last week with Gwen, she said something like, America is a land of milk and honey, right? Because we have all these resources. We have all these intense and detailed um, steps and resources that, you know, we take upon ourselves you know, or at least we receive from these healthcare professionals. But it's very unfortunate that a lot of African countries cannot attest to that, right? They are not, as we have already seen in Cameroon, we don't even have, we barely have mammograms. We can count, we can't even count the number of mammograms with, you know, one hand. So do you know of any resources? I, I don't want to say in Africa because that's really broad, but at least we all are from Cameroon. So, for example, in Cameroon, are there any resources that our own people can take advantage of? Are there any support groups or support organizations that people can take advantage of in Africa and specifically in Cameroon? Okay. Is the question to me? Yes, to you. 
I was a bit out for a while. So maybe Akri can go and then I would understand the question later. I just went, I just dashed out. Yeah. Right. Now, I was going to have you answer the question, but before that, I wanted to say that when I'm talking to patients back home and I try to tell them about support groups, you know, they're always like, but we need money. I need money for treatments. Like, it's more about the money for treatment. Like, they don't even want to focus on that. It's just like, right. but I million um, three million francs for my radiation so the the problems back home yeah are, they're, di- they're kind of different yeah they'd rather just you give the money for their treatment but um dog i'm sure you can tell us um if there are support groups or resources back home well before doc talks about that that's true what you're saying i agree but i for my organization right we do organize those um support groups where it's a safe for me i see it as a safe haven for people going through and people who have already gone through because living life after cancer is also a big challenge like me and you we've been trying to explain that when we do have these support groups where we do like massage and uh, look good feel good they come do makeups and we do pictures i tell you this it's not like i'm asking like okay would you want this or this we just have this event People really go back home feeling good about themselves. They really, we have a good feedback from mm. people who really attend this event. Sometimes they come and they don't want to go back home. Oh. The events just go on and on and on, and we pass time because they just don't want to go back home. And I see how important that is. Sometimes they don't, even, they don't know how important it is until they get there, and then they realize that, oh, I really needed this. Right. Yeah. So what do you have to add about on that, uh, Dr. Former? Yeah, so I would want to, there are a lot of diasporan groups, including as you just heard from uh, Gwen and uh, also from Africa, a lot of people who are trying to do things back home. Mm-hmm. There are most of those groups getting back home and really laying emphasis on cancer are most likely, they're mostly diasporans. Mm-hmm. who are creating little groups that are trying to encourage us to even know about cancer in the first place, put it in the map, and try for people to actually get screening and uh, for people to get treatment so that they can even survive. So we have very few people actually surviving their cancers to actually form a support group. So it's really where we're in a situation where we need to have a healthcare system which is built on actually helping these patients get treatment. Right. Because they feel that the fundamentals are not even taken care of. They are not even being able to offer them treatment. Treatment, yeah. Affordable treatment too. Majority of them want to go to India. Trust me, I know exactly how this works very well. So they are looking for money. They want six million, three million to be able to go to India and take medications. They have tried, they have told them it's metastatic, they're unable to give them the medication they need back home. So in the Maslow scale, we lack the fundamentals. So there are other things that people don't even want to talk about because the fundamentals are not even there. They are unable to eat. They are unable yeah. to have medication when they're in the hospital to treat the drug, the, the disease they have been diagnosed with. They are unable to stay in bingo and even have food 
where they can have constant meals every day. Mm-hmm. They are mm-hmm. able to do their lab tests, to do a PET scan or to pay for their surgery. They are unable to even survive after the surgery. They don't even know exactly what the prognosis is. The family doesn't even know if they should go ahead and pay for a surgery that they know the patient is not going to survive. Right. Or mm-hmm. it. They are unable to pay for chemotherapy. One of my, my aunt who passed away, I went to Cameroon once to, for my father's funeral. And uh, my aunt was sick with colon cancer. She knows I'm a doctor. Now she is in the hospital. I'm asking her what is wrong. She said she has had a surgery. She passed away. She has had surgery. I said, for what? She said she has colon cancer. I said, who operated you? What stage is it? Why did they even operate you in the first place? She's like, oh, no. The, can, if I went, Muno, they call me Muno. So they said, Pado, if I went to L'Hopital General, I would be dead. But that was the right thing for her to do because she had metastatic disease. They didn't even stage her. Hmm. But someone vicious wanted to make money and wanted to do the surgery. She didn't come out of the surgery. She, she talked to me in the hospital, didn't feel and die. But just letting you know there are fundamental problems. There are doctors who are poor. I grew up in Cameroon. I know how it works. Who, for ethics, is being sold with yeah. trying to leave. Oh, yes. They get to close the ethical page, not because they want to, just because survival is difficult. Yes. Taking care of their own family is difficult. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of us run to the diaspora and we try to judge them from the diaspora. And we try to level them from the diaspora. And I don't know if it would have been doing better. You need a whole lot of good conscience to put medicine back to work in Cameroon. Yeah. And all these things actually make it difficult to even have survivors that can form groups and have sustainable groups. But there are some hospitals that are trying to create these groups, especially for cancers that are not very deadly. Mm-hmm. Children's cancer, there is a Fondation Chantabia that does a very good job in Yaoundé mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. children's leukemia. They have a very good cancer center there for childhood leukemia, lymphomas, and Burkitt's, which they're doing a relatively very good job. There is a new cancer center in Douala, which was just open a radiation center. I'm still monitoring to see how they're going to do. L'Hopital Central Yaoundé used to have Professor Ndom who was there and trying to organize some few things. They're taking good care of some prostate patients and few breast patients, but their radiation oncology section is no longer working and they have a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. There is L'Hopital General in Douala, which you could get some, there's good decent doctors there, but just that the system itself, and they can organize all this, but I'm encouraging everyone in the diaspora, all the different groups that exist, I don't want to call each and every one of them, there are a lot of them who are actually trying to pave the right step forward, and I'm encouraging all of them, we have a virgin field where we can help patients survive. Right. We should look at it as using breast cancer to fix the system. Right. We can try to cure human minds in such a way that if they give us a problem, if it's small enough, we can help. Usually when they tell us someone is sick, we're easily to donate money for that person. But if they tell you a bigger problem, like, oh, let's fix Cameroon healthcare system, everyone goes away because the field is so big for them. But we can always make that change. That's it's just the way our mindset is. So we can advocate for that change to go on in Cameroon. We need a system. And That's please, guys, if you are among those who have those groups, Happy and Gwen, you guys should continue doing the good job you're doing. Yeah, I think yeah. you're saving lives one life at a time by telling your stories, by advocating for everything you're doing. 
Yeah. Thank you very much for sharing that. Let's talk about Dare to Leave because talking about um, organizations that are actually helping. I know last last week we spoke about Royal Warrior. That's the name of Gwen's organization. So let's talk more about Dare to Leave. Akwi, can you enlighten us on that, please? So Dare to Leave with Anjo. Anjo is my middle name. Um, it's a nonprofit, and we, we try to create awareness on breast cancer amongst women, especially young women, and we provide resources to breast cancer patients and survivors, mainly back home in Cameroon. So um, when I started my treatment, midway, I kind of felt like I was going through it with strength and zeal, and my support system will always like encourage me and make me know that I was going through it, you know, with hope and faith. So I decided to share my story on social media. When I decided to share my story, my goal was to inspire people that um, no matter what you're going through, just try to go through it with faith and hope and trust and believe and that, you know, life life wasn't easy, but what, what choice do you really have? No matter what you're going through, just try to go through it with hope. When I shared my story, I had a couple of women reach out to me from Cameroon to tell me that they were either in treatment or were survivors. And this kind of really took me by surprise because back home, I knew only one person that had breast cancer, and she was between the states and Cameroon. So I didn't really know breast cancer patients back home. I didn't even know that Bamenda had a cancer uh, center, bingo. I didn't even know that there were that many breast cancer patients back home or young women. So I had a lot of young women reach out to me and I tried to get more information, like where were you doing your treatment? How was the treatment process? And that's one of the times when I realized that I was so blessed, so lucky to be out in the United States with my breast cancer. Back home is a jungle. I learned that there was no mammogram in the Northwest. Um, there was one radiation machine and there was a long wait to do radiation, the treatment was so expensive. And I'm sitting here with my good health insurance and I could do anything I wanted at any time, my surgery, my chemo. I, did, I never thought about my bills because I had good insurance. I had people, my insurance would um, provide people to come clean my house when I needed. I had support groups. I had everything that I needed to go through my treatment and money was not an issue. And, you know, mental-wise, so I had support groups. I could see a therapist. But after speaking with the women back home, I decided to create the foundation, um, Dare to Live with Anjo. And I chose the name Dare to Live because I was trying to tell people, like, no matter what you're going through, Dare to Live. Like, just push, keep going. We're all going to die. And I really came into, I came into understanding, like, a mortal at some point in my life, I'm going to die. It's going to be cancer or something else. So how do I want to die? Do I want to die, you know, just being depressed and sad and, you know, just give give up on life or do I want to keep pushing and, you know, just live life to the fullest until my day comes. So we created a nonprofit and so far we've done, we've done pretty good. I've gone back home once. But over the past three years, we've organized a lot of awareness events. We've done free breast cancer screenings, paid for patient treatments. We've taken several patients to their treatments. But we're focused more on creating awareness and encouraging women to do their screen and breast exams rather than just wait, you know, until the cancer yeah. really develops. But I realized that 
the prognosis back home is really bad. And most of the time, women get diagnosed really late. late yeah. At the beginning, I started paying for treatment. And because I'm, it was the beginning, I didn't really have a lot of knowledge on how to raise funds. I was just emptying my account. And then the treatment is not ending. I paid for, you know, treatment for two ladies. And it's one thing after another. It's infection. It's gone to the brain. It's gone. I, I was like, okay, this we have to take a step back and focus more on encouraging women to do their breast exams because if yeah. they catch stage zero or stage one, then they don't have to go through this long, expensive treatments. So really, really focus now on putting the word out there. Like every woman in Cameroon should know about breast cancer. Do your breast exams at home. Do your breast exams in the hospital. I even put out a video um, a few days ago. I'm just trying to show um, how to... Yeah how to do your breast exams because i think that is key creating that awareness we're organizing a walk in yaoundé on the 31st of um, this month you know, hoping that what is really going to go out and you know people back home are going to see you know what we're trying to do know about breast cancer and be encouraged to do their breast screening and i do work with dr Anne meissen and a couple of doctors in yaoundé bamenda and douala you know with their patients and we've sent medication i sent medication back home and um, other care packages which we are now dividing to patients in the hospitals because I got inspired to do that because during my treatment my chemotherapy treatment sessions we would have people coming mostly relatives of um, patients they would just come in and give us those little gifts so this time when this lady came in and she gave us like some little packets and I opened mine and I had a pair of socks and it just meant so much to me. You know, somebody's thinking about you. It just makes you feel really good inside. So that's what we're doing the next two weeks in Yaoundé, Baminda and Douala. We're going to the hospitals and we're giving out packages to, to patients. So far, that's what we've been doing. And I have, a you know, I have goals, you right. know, for the non-profit. And I'm hoping that within the next you know, few years, I'll be able to provide some um, really vital equipment that I know that is needed back home, mammogram, radiation machine. I'm actually talking with a couple of people here who work in organizations that do provide equipment back home. I'm just trying to figure out how we're going to maintain the equipment maintain, back yeah. home. I've heard about people sending uh, medical equipment back home and within months it stops working. Nobody's taking care of it or they're just basically taxing people, you know, making them pay a lot of money for for using the equipment. So there's a lot of work that we're doing, and I'm definitely going to partner with Gwen. I think we've done something together. I think last year we partnered with Gwen, and we did um, do some events back home. And, of course, I'm going to now be, you know, doctor, doctor, former. I'm definitely going to pick your brain <laughs> and how we can work together right. to be yeah, pick that change back home. I know it starts with one woman, you know, one equipment, and I know that we're definitely going to get there. And hopefully we can get in touch with the people in the government because it's chicken change for the government to provide mammograms in every region in Cameroon. Yes. It takes nothing for them to do that. I don't know why there's that hesitation, but I think if we push and keep talking about it, you know, it's going to get to the right ears and we're going to see some change. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I mean, I, you know, about the walk on October 31st, you know, funny enough, when I posted it on my status, actually, I know this lady, she's my auntie's very good friend, and she's actually bad selling breast cancer, and she was super excited. She was like, 
please send this to me. I really want to participate. So um, I just want to let you know that you're making a broader impact than you even think you are. And I just want to encourage both of you to just keep doing what you're doing because a lot of women need these resources. Not only women, a lot of people going through cancer as a whole or other diseases. And like you mentioned, it only takes one person at a time to make that difference. And I hope that we can all make that difference in our own way possible. So now that we're coming to the end of this conversation, I just wanted to ask um, all three of you, like what, based on your experience from a professional standpoint and also from a patient standpoint, uh, what will you really advise um, other women in our community about breast cancer, about knowing about it and just, you know, managing life through it and just what life has taught you as a whole um, about breast cancer. So you can start, Gwen, and then after that we go with Aqui and finalize with Dr. Foma. Oh, like we've been saying, it's like all the departments need a lot of, they have no help back home. There is just, we have to do everything, but we have to start somewhere. But when I think about it, I want to I want to focus on what I really think I have a calling for because that's the path I have seen myself going God has been leading me in right we we talk about all these things we we want to do all this diagnosis and all that and I really have a passion for people that have already gone through all of this hospice. It's one thing we don't have or we are not even welcoming in our society. Fortunately, I'm a hospice nurse, so I have seen a lot of people who are suffering and I've helped a lot of people. And when I do help these people, I take a step back and I say, for the people in my community back in Cameroon, I don't see them having even a knowledge of the things that can help somebody transition. Because we are going to die. It's going to be cancer. It's going to be anything. Yeah. But talking about the people who have cancer, most people die. We're lucky that we did not. My son went through it, and I know how his last days were. I did not use hospice when I had the opportunity to for some reasons because at that time I was not welcoming to it, just like many of us in our community is. But that's um, one department which I want to encourage our community to, to embrace. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That that is that is very important actually and that's something that makes a lot of sense cuz I really didn't even think about that. You know because we have this ideology back home that if you talk about death or if you are helping someone it's like hospice is is looked upon as helping someone to die. It means you're the person is accepting death because even on the deathbed you see people still like it's a lie. It's a lie. You will not go. You will not die. You know like things like that. Yes. So <laughs> but the thing is I've had so many hospice patients who have also graduated right yeah but the, the likelihood is it's right slim, but there is nothing better than helping somebody transition or seeing your family member transition in a more peaceful way or pain-free way or i don't know if our medical society in cameroon really I, I don't think we focus on that at all but when we talk about cancer that's something we cannot leave out yeah that's very yeah. true. That's very true. So what about you, Akwi? Um, what message do you have? Um, I just really try to encourage women to um, be proactive, do your breast exams. I never did mine. 
I never, I, I, nobody in my, in my family has cancer, never thought I could have cancer, so never, you know, cared to do my breast exams or make sure that I go for my physical yearly. So I just really encourage women to do it. But I understand that a lot of women fear doing their breast exams, you know. It's like, I don't want to call cancer. Yes. Or, yeah, mm -mm, don't, ignorance is bliss. If it happens, it's going to happen. I'm not going to start looking for it. If you're that person, I cannot force you. But I'll say if it happens, it's not death, a death sentence. Look at it like a light. For me, for me, my cancer was a light out moment. Yeah. Light out moment. You know, I went to boarding school. Yeah. And in the night, lights go up for like 15 minutes. They'll go off and come back on. And then you know that, okay, within the next 15 minutes, they're going to go off. Go you know, up, to yeah. So for me, my cancer was that light out warning, like, hey, death is something that you're going to, you know, you're going to go through. What do you want to do now with your life? And that led me to my purpose. I feel like my nonprofit is my purpose. It, I, it, it keeps me going, you know, helping people and just trying to give back. And I encourage people to try to find your purpose. And I was, people always ask, how do you find your purpose? I say, you find your purpose by living you just live life. It's going to come to you. Just keep doing the things that you like to do. Just go out there and live your life. It's going to come to you. And when it comes to you, you're going to know and, you know, follow it and live your life and know that death, death is inevitable. But uh, no matter what you're going through in your life, just go through it with strength and hope yeah. and faith and dare to live. Right, right, right. Thank you so much. You make a good point because when you said about, you know, people not, you know, ignorance is bliss, for example. I had a conversation a couple of years back with this older friend of mine. She was in her mid-40s back then and she was complaining, oh, you know, I have pain here, pain here. And I asked her, I'm like, when was the last time you did a wellness check? Do you go to check your breast? Do you go to do all those examinations? And she's like, Anya, you know, it's, it's, it's better if, what if I go and they find something? What am I going to do? Mm -hmm. You know, it's better if I just don't know. I'm like, woman, you have four kids. You have people that are dependent on you. You know, like, it's better for you to catch it early and treat it than for you to instead catch it late and then, you know, there's all these expenses, there's all these complications and your life just turns upside down, you know? So that's a very common um, mentality, amongst our people, which we have to change. So uh, to finalize everything, what do you have to add to that, Dr. Palmer? I, I'm a big believer of uh, strengthening the healthcare system. And I think each and every one of you with your organization is trying to do that. And I feel that getting a healthcare system which is robust and uh, strong will be able to deal with all these problems we're dealing with. Breast cancer just being one of the most complex diseases you can have in medicine. We can talk about breast cancer for two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight days, just how to treat each and every one of it, how to navigate it. That's why you have so many specialists that are involved in it. So if we strengthen the healthcare system by several things, I am a big advocate and I'm a very loud one at times online. Those who know me, I don't advocate for cancer a lot. I do advocate for infectious disease because that was my background in the past. So I try as much as possible to use, I used the COVID pandemic in order to hold our healthcare system accountable. accountable yeah. yeah, there's a network, there is a whole, I call it a Cameroon town hall for healthcare professionals where 
every two weeks we do organize discussions, educational discussions about evaluating the healthcare system in Cameroon and seeing how we can improve it. And we get some of the stakeholders to come there and we talk about things, we talk about educating people. So, and I'm one of those who, each time I go into a panel trying to advise people on what to do when they go back home, is to think about sustainability. It's not that Cameroon has never bought a radiation machine, it's just that they have never bought a radiation machine that they can repair. Hmm. It's not that Cameroon does not have an MRI. Before I left Q's, I was I specialized in Q's too before coming to the US. They just bought an MRI machine. It got bad after six months to date. No one has repaired it. That's eleven years since I moved to this country. But no one has repaired it because they bought it, they didn't get guarantee. They bought it, they didn't have technologies to repair it, they don't have diseases to repair it. We are, we do a lot of actions which are not sustainable. It's not that all the regions do not have an, a CT scan. President Dia provided CT scan to all the regions some years back when I was in Bamenda Regional Hospital. They all got bad. No one is repairing them. No one is able to sustain them. Wow. So there's an issue of sustainability back home. Even if you send 100 CT scan machines that you're unable to sustain them, there is going to be a time you're going to provide bigger problems because you get people lined up for hemodialysis then you start seeing a scandal where the machines are bad, no one is able to repair them. So sustainability is something we should always think about. All the organizations going to Cameroon, you should should actually put that as part of your mission. Whatever advocacy you're going in for to provide, you're going to provide educational access, you want to educate the people back home so they can keep educating themselves. You're providing machines. You want to make sure that those machines are going to be sustainable. They are friendly in the tropical region. They are able to fix them. You have people who will be able to repair those machines when they get bad. You can troubleshoot them from the U.S. You don't just want to buy something that cannot be repaired or something that is no longer produced. My advice usually to those back home overall is that prevention is better than cure. I'm going back to the premise of public health. It's humbling, maybe because I'm a public health physician also, it's humbling to know that there are few things in life that have changed our life expectancy, very few. And so few, we are not one of them. Being doctors, being pharmacists, not one of them. Maybe nurses, yeah. But maybe I'll give credit to the pharmacists a bit. The few things that have changed life expectancy for humans in the past 100 years, when WHO published its centenarian analysis, was one, the discovery of hygiene and sanitation. We knew about hygiene and sanitation, but it was a recent discovery in the early 18th century, knowing that washing your hands can prevent you from getting diseases, knowing that cholera actually comes as a result of contamination when Jon Snow closed the tap in the center of London, Mm -hmm. knowing that these things matter. The second thing is the discovery of antibiotics. The third thing, the reduction of smoking, and the drinking of alcohol, strong advocacy came in, coming from two epidemiologists in London. The last thing is every other thing we do in medicine. Every other thing, cardiac catheterizations, chemotherapy, all those things. When you take them as a bulk, they have not increased life expectancy for all humans by up to five years. It's humbling to know that prevention is better than cure at every stage. Anyone who insists, so you guys should not minimize what you're doing, who insists on catching disease early, 
who insist on preventing disease in the first place is doing a bigger job than anyone who's curing it. So I'm going to advocate for prevention measures. The way Africa is, the way Cameroon is, the way our healthcare system is right now, prevention is the best tool we have. So my <laughs> message out there is, if you're in the U.S., I'm going to say, okay, self-based exams, I'm not going to be. But if you're in Cameroon, it's so important because that's the only way you're going to notice it. There are no mammograms. And that's the way you're going to run to Douala and Yaoundé to do one. And uh, if you are here, you can, if you know that being fat or having a child late could actually increase your chances, you could always take care of those things and make sure that you take care of those things that are actually predisposing. If you have family members who have breast cancer, you can always go to Yaoundé, Douala and the other places and get a mammogram. Oh, rush to bingo and see what they can do because they are trying to improve their system, their healthcare system over there. And in the Southwest, there are other areas there. So prevention to me is really number one. Sustainability is for different targets. Prevention is for the patients. Sustainability for the whole healthcare system, those who are investing there. And uh, more for doctors is knowledge. Right. <clears throat> because training doctors is usually focused on regions what they train, some, you, you ask the question, why is it difficult for us to concentrate on breast cancer because we have other problems and people are shouting the other problems more than cancer. That's true. People are shouting HIV more than cancer. They are shouting malaria more than cancer. They are shouting TB more than cancer. Yeah. They are shouting tropical disease more than cancer. They are now shouting COVID more than cancer. So cancer is left at the bottom. It's a silent disease. No one knows about it. Yeah. Took the world thousands and millions of years for someone about that. Right. And, and, and adding to what you're talking about, cancer is at the bottom. There is also this very, I feel like one of the things that actually hurts us the most in our community, especially amongst women. Four out of five women who I know have passed from breast cancer did not tell anyone until it was late and they were literally dying. Like, they think talking about their cancer is a taboo. Most of them, you see educated women, they go to the marabouts, the he uh, herbalists. They'll go first there before even going to the doctor. It's like they just don't want to come to that realization that I have cancer. Or if they even have cancer, they just don't want to tell people because they feel like it's a curse and it's literally a death sentence. And they don't want people to know and maybe rush the process for them and stuff. Like, I, I don't know where the ideology came from. But the more you talk to people, as Aqui and Gwen have explained, I mean, Aqui would never have had a survivor come up to her to tell her her own experience, share her own experience, and even encourage her if she did not talk to a survivor, if she did not talk to someone. So it's very important to talk to people. As a breast cancer patient, don't expect that community to come around you. You sometimes have to build your own community by talking about your experience, like what's going on with you. And you would attract your story will attract the right people into your life to build that community around you. That's just how I look at it. Um, so that's something um, I just Anya, to throw out. Let there. me let me add to that. I think based on my experience, 
I don't think it's the patients themselves. I think it's our community as a whole. I remember when I got diagnosed with, with cancer, I made it a conscious decision to take it onto Facebook. From day one, mm-hmm. I started my journey on Facebook till the last day. Mm-hmm. But the, the flashback, I think I was one of the first Cameroonians who had come on Facebook and said, you know what, I had cancer. The, 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 fact that the, the clash I had on Facebook, not just with people I don't even know, but the people that I know that I love, they're like, you can't say that. You yep. can't say that Whoa. because, yeah, yep. our yep. community, nope, they are not yep. open to you saying that this is me. We don't want to hear bad news. Oh boy. I think it ignites some kind of fear in other people. I don't know what it is. But even the people that are close to me, they're like, oh, you talk too much. You can't put everything on Facebook. You can't, yeah. yes. Yeah, you know, I- and I have family members tell me, why would you do that? Why would yes. you put no? They put it down, put it down. Mm-hmm. And then I had the word comment that made me feel bad. They said I was socializing my cancer. Oh, I'll put <laughs> on Facebook. She's socializing it to get likes. And oh, mm-hmm. my goodness. If I was yeah. about this, I swear, I would have just, you know, blocked everything yeah. out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just want to uh, defend the people a bit, but not defend them. Why? Because you're in, we're, we're living in a society where, looking at it psychologically, these people are not educated in what you have. That's the first thing. And they feel that they associate the diagnosis with death. That's the second thing. And that's why each time someone associates a diagnosis with death, they look for solution. They become irrational, no matter how much education they have. Yeah. No matter if they are doctors. Yeah, that's true. So if you have a problem without a solution, or you are not educated about a solution, you become a fanatic. You become irrational. Not because you want to be irrational, because the human brain cannot just rationalize the fact that you're dying because of lack of acceptance. So those who react that way and those who run to marabouts, those who don't want to know, is just because they lack the education even about this. The level of development that is going on in cancer. That's why I said doctors need education, not only the patients. Think about it. If you come to me and I don't even have, you come to me, okay, that you have breast cancer in Cameroon. Most of the time it's going to be metastatic disease. What am I going to offer you? Just think about it for a while. What will I offer you? Will I send you to Yaoundé to go get radiation where there's no radiation being done? Will I send you to go get chemotherapy where I don't know anyone who can give it safely, where I was not even educated in it, where I can even hardly diagnose you, where I'm not going to be able to have pathology? So what will I do? I'll tell you, oh, no, if this is your problem, I'm able to help you. Then what are you going to do? Someone is going to tell you about a spiritual water that works. That's and true. you're desperate. You're desperate because the, what the, the system you rely on has failed you. And the only way out, that's why people lined up during the period of HIV. Do you hear about HIV patients still going to Mexican houses? Because everyone knows the antiretrovirus work. Mm-hmm. And they take it hidden in their houses and nobody knows. Nobody goes there anymore because they have a solution. That's true. They used to go there because there was no solution. So they found rescue in anything. In 1920, the U.S. Senate put out information package. They used to call one of the senators advocating for cancer. He said he was going to give money to anybody who has a cure for cancer. Do you know the cures that he received? Holy water. All things that we're going through. <laughs> Holy water. You can read it. There is this 
book I advocate for people to read about cancer is called The Emperor of All Maladies. Okay, mm. The Emperor of All Maladies is an amazing book, amazing about the history of cancer. It's called The Emperor of All Maladies. You get to see during that time that guy's office got shot and the Senate had to redraw that money because they said he was wasting time. He was advocating for a disease that they were not seeing. And the more reason why we're seeing more cancer is that people are living longer. It's a yeah. disease that you get the more the longer you live. And people in the US in the 1920s were the same like everybody in Africa. They advocated for spiritual warfare, they advocated for nutrition, they advocated for people went to all these places. Not because they were not educated. It's just because they could not rationalize that. True. With what they had. It's difficult. It's a difficult thing to do. I'm just been observing my patients. That's what I'm going to tell you. When they reach the stage that Gwendolyn said that we have to offer hospice to them. Because palliative care, we offer it to every patient who's who's sick and who has a disease that is going to be there for long. You need to offer them palliative care. That's the difference between hospice and palliation. Mm-hmm. Palliation is just taking care, taking pain away to anyone. Hospice is a specific definition in the U.S. in particular and Canada where there is a sending mandate that states that you're going to die in the next six months. Really, that's really where it comes. But they offer you everything we offer to you during palliation and more because you're dying and we want you to die with dignity, with comfort, and die well. Now, once this patient reaches a stage where we have reached a block, especially my patients with pancreatic cancer and they know that they're dying, there are two kinds of patients, those who are ready to die, those who know everything that's going on, those who do not want more treatment, those who want a quality life, and you need to be able to tell them that living without treatment is better than living with treatment. And there are times that it comes to this, and some people do rationalize that others just don't. They just don't understand that concept. A lot of doctors don't, nurses don't. I've had all kinds of patients. So it doesn't matter how educated you are. It's just some people don't accept it. But it's with time. So even back home, there are so many problems that are complex, and we need to educate the people. We need to provide them with solutions where they, have, they can see examples of people who had this breast cancer and got better. In the U.S., this whole thing changed with prevention, secondary prevention, when we're doing mammograms, when they started, 90% of all breast cancers in the U.S. are less than stage 3. They are like stage 3 and below. It, the reverse was true just 20 years back. 90% of breast cancers in the U.S. were stage 4. So by screening, U.S., U.K., Germany, France, by screening, you get it early, you diagnose it, you treat it, people get confidence in the system, you know that you're doing something beneficial. But by just getting those, everyone they know who was leveled with breast cancer died, they are like, God, I don't want to know it. Yeah. They feel that is a protection mechanism. So that's why I say I want to defend them a bit, not really defend yeah. them, but just say that we need to educate them. After educating them, then we're going to have like it's a whole process of knowledge, attitude, and practice. A cap issue if you want to really understand. They need the knowledge, they need to think about their attitude. Then before knowledge, attitude, before they change their practice. That's true. <laughs> That's very true. Thank you so much.
<laughs> thank you so much for sharing that. I, I, I must add, I think, thank uh, you, Gwen and Aqui as well. When you said that, it just reminded me there's going to be an episode. I'm just letting everyone know. There's an episode that I already recorded. It's coming up. It's actually going to be very personal, very sensational uh, to me. I'm having that episode with my family and I. We're sitting down to talk about an incident that happened to us in the 90s and that we're still dealing with today. And it had to do with one of my brothers. And this is the very first official time that we sat down as a family to talk about that. It was extremely emotional, but a lot of things were revealed that shocked me. My mom is a medical doctor. My dad is a PhD. Those are people that have the highest level of education. But out of desperation, I was extremely shocked to know what they decided to do based on one of my brother's illnesses because they were obviously not educated. It was something new back then, and they were just desperate for a solution. You know, that will come sometime in the next couple of weeks, but I just wanted to throw that out there to solidify what you just said because even the most educated people can make the most irrational decisions when they're desperate. So thank you so much for sharing that. I'm going to include all of your y'all's contact information in the show notes. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> I know people are definitely going to be contacting you guys for more information. I, for one, would definitely keep in touch with each and every one of you because we have so much work to do. I'm literally having chills. This is a very long episode, but it's extremely resourceful. I can't even emphasize on that mu as much. Um, I really want to thank all of you from the bottom of my heart for taking this time out of your busy schedules to just come and have this very, very important and necessary conversation. And I hope that this conversation does not end here. I hope that this conversation actually opens up a new topic and a new discussion, a w new way of looking at non-communicable diseases and specifically cancer in our community. And I hope that it has touched everyone and inspired everyone to dare to leave or to be a royal warrior and just to want to lead their best lives as it has done to me. So I just want to thank all of you guys for coming on here and I will see you guys in the next episode. <laughs> thank you. for today thank you for listening to our show if you want to participate in the show or find out more helpful resources then visit www.livingafricanpodcast.com for more information or email us at hello at livingafricanpodcast.com also don't forget to connect with us on all social media platforms at living african podcast you can also connect with anyo directly on Facebook or Instagram at Anyo Fombard. Thanks again for listening and let's not forget to be more understanding and nicer to one another.